Hey lab rats, welcome to Crime Keeper. It's Igor here and I am excited to get into this week's stories. Just going to go right into it. Dispense with the pomp and circumstance. Going to start off with the newsflash. And I'm sure you've all heard about the death of the very talented actor, Michael K. Williams, and that they did finally arrest four men who were part of a fentanyl-laced heroin drug ring that took his life and obviously probably others as well. So they're looking at a sentence of five to 40 years. But what I found really, I mean, the whole thing is horrific, but what I found really an extra poor taste, I guess is a way to say it. They still sold the deadly substances to other people in Brooklyn and Manhattan, even after he died. So I guess money's money to them. So say la vie. Now, that was pretty much it for the news flash because, like I said, I want to get on to other things. And there are three small stories here, but small in how much time they're going to take up to talk about, but larger. They loom a lot heavier, obviously. In the WTF section, I had found a story on people.com and it's Akia Eggleston. I hadn't heard about this before. She was 22 years old when she went missing, she was eight months pregnant, and was a mom to a two-year-old. She has not been seen since May of 2017. She missed her own baby shower. Now, I don't think that's very smart, whoever was involved with her. <laughs> I mean, she's going to be missed, but big red flags when you miss a big life event like that. So they did recently arrest the father of her baby that she was pregnant with and charged him with their deaths. Their bodies weren't found, but after this amount of time and her not contacting any family, the police felt that based on her, the way she lived her life, being very involved with others in her family, that she, if she was alive, she would have done so. Now, what really gets me is the inhuman freak moved with the mother of his other two children. So he dispensed of her and his son or daughter and said, you know what, I'm just going to. These are these ones are okay. The other ones were not. I just I will never understand why you just don't move on. It's better to show your colors and neglect, just moving away, ghosting someone, which you can't totally when you're a parent, but you know, just move away at that point and then they get it and they can get on with their lives. I just will never understand how it gets to this level. So he was arrested and it's still developing. So is that continues. Of course, I will let you know, but I'm really thinking about her family. That's just so heartbreaking. My new place to go for crime stories is Crime Door. And this one is a little, it's not lighter. It starts off with a, a stupid lighter reason that could have just ended there, but it's not in WTF if it did. So this dude kills his friend over mayo. Yes, you heard me right. The condiment. So in Iowa, Christopher Erlbacher ran his truck over Carl Solberg after they got into a fight over said condiment. They shockingly had been drinking when Erlbacher put the much-loved but by most dressing on Solberg's food. So Erlbacher puts it on Solberg's food, right? This didn't go over well with Solberg, so a kerfuffle ensued. So fight broke out, and of course, the normal thing to do was the spreader calls the spreadie's brother and threatens to burn down his house and shoot him. 
Mm-hmm. That's right. The guy that had his food tainted gets terrorized. So it was the taintor, not the taintee. Is that right? I don't know. I'm confused myself. It then escalated into, into vehicular homicide when Erlbacher not only hit Salberg with his truck, but turns around and runs over him twice more. Just hideous. Luckily, then Erlbacher's truck broke down and he was caught. But seriously, I mean, and it wasn't even his food. <laughs> he, I mean, he was, yeah. So there, obviously, when these things happen, it tends to be a little bit deeper. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that. Next, uh, well, the last story in WTF is about Kendrick Johnson. Now, if you haven't heard this story, True Crime Garage does an excellent like two or three parter of a deep dive. And I think I've heard it other places, but I, I just remember initially hearing about it, I believe, through the True Crime Garage guys. So I was appalled when I heard that the sheriff said there was no foul play in his 2013 death. Now, it was immediately followed up by the sheriff putting up his own half million dollars for, for a reward leading to the arrest and conviction of someone because the family called Bushi on it and said, this is ridiculous. So let's hope there are now developments that lead to the truth. And again, look into it. Even if you Google it, you're going to get some really good information, but it's just very sad. And I mean, he could be any of our sons. Let's get on to the main event. I'm excited. Main source is the book, Victims of the Axe Fiend, Mystery, Mayhem, and the Church of Sacrifice Murders by Troy Taylor. Now, I do listen to him. I don't know if you read the Facebook post, but I am a fan of his already. I don't recall reading any of his books until now, but I knew he was an author based on following the American Hauntings podcast. They also in charge of doing seminars and he does ghost tours there in Alton, Illinois. So very familiar with him. And when I was doing my research, his book pops up. I got to looking at it and it was perfect. It talks a lot about the axe murders during this certain time frame and his theory on it, which I'll get into a little bit, but it was a really good read. And I didn't even need to really get into the other sources that I found, although I did find some actual newspaper articles from 1912, 1913, a time frame right around the when the murders happened. So I did look through those and I may come back to that at some point, but for now, we got a lot to get to. I want to set the scene. The Jim Crow laws that limited severely what African-Americans can and can't do. Don'ts such as you can't be affectionate to one another in public if you're not white and there should be no sex between black men and white women. And this was actually defined as being rape. If it did occur, there were dues such as they had to call white people, Mr., Mrs., Sir, Ma'am, and they had to allow white motorists the right of way. Wowza. This went on until 1954 when the Supreme Court overturned Plessy versus Ferguson. So, like I said, although I'm focusing on the axe crimes attributed to Clementine Barnabet, this timeline allows us to get the true feel of what was going on during the early 1900s. I also feel that Troy makes a good case for his theory that despite there being a central axe murderer, he is not responsible for all these slangs. Between Troy's evidence and the newspapers that I reviewed from the actual period, I tend to agree with his determination and that Clementine was responsible for the murder she was convicted. So 
starting them off, March 1911, Cassaway family happened in San Antonio, Texas. Louis, Lizzie, who was a white woman, and their three kids, Louise, three, Josie, six, and Alfred, five months. They were all found hit with the blunt side of an axe left at the scene. The back door had been closed, but not locked. Blood was, of course, on the wall, ceiling, and floor. No sign of robbery, and the home was not left in disarray. But there were footprints leading away from their door. The rain had begun around 11 p.m., so the theory was the killer was in the house before the rain started. The killer had covered the faces of the parents, and pillows were found in the windows, along with a blanket across another. The family was buried in three separate caskets. Louise, Lizzie with Alfred, then Josie and Louise. Rumors started the family had been drugged. The sheriff and other investigators believed it was racially motivated. No one was ever tried. And you're going to see a theme of that as we go. Second, November 1909, Rain, Louisiana, the Opelousas family. Edna, who was multiracial, and her three kids, four to nine. 1 a.m., neighbors awoke to the screams of the family from their 10 by 12 shack. Edna had already passed when she was found with her head demolished by the blunt side of an axe, which was left at the scene. A witness said there was a man seen running from the home heading to the railroad tracks. This, too, is an unsolved case. The third, January 1911 in Crowley, Louisiana. The buyers. Walter, Sylvania, and six-year-old, and I don't have a name there, all had been placed in a single bed in a room, which now had bloody footprints on the floor. The doors had all been secured from the inside, and the killer had gotten in through a window. The axe was again found at the scene. The son had been placed at the feet of his parents, turned sideways. A basin in the room had bloody water in it. The murder is also unsolved. So pretty much you're catching a theme here. The axe was at the scene. The bodies were usually placed somewhere altogether. Nothing was moved around. Nothing was ransacked. And really, from what it says in the book, most of these families were very poor, didn't have a lot to take anyway, but uh, nothing was found taken and everything else was in its place. Four, February 1911, Lafayette, Louisiana, the Andresses. Alexander, Mimi, Joachim, three, Agnes, 11 months. All four had been in the bed they were sharing. Blood, of course, was everywhere. This time, the killer had staged the bodies. The babies were on the floor beside the bed. The parents were knelt in front of them like they were praying with Mimi's hand on Alexander's shoulder. No theft again, except of the axe that had been used. So now the axe is missing. This takes us to Raymond Barnabet. He was looked at for the Andrus murders after him and his lady friend had a fight. She began to tell everyone who would listen that he was not only a bad dude, but that he was behind the recent axe carnage. When further questioned, she, of course, denied it all, which completely frustrated the police. So Lafayette Parish Sheriff Louis Lacoste asked Ray Boom Boom Barnabet I put that in there, alienated wife and kids to answer some questions about daddy. This, as they say, is when it gets interesting. So wifey that had been 
cheated on, daughter Clementine and son Zephyrin spoke for two days with the cops, giving them all they wanted to hear and more. They were afraid of Raymond's drunken, violent tendencies and were adamant he was responsible for the Andrus family extermination. In fact, they said so much that Lacoste actually began to get suspicious because they said exactly the same things, word for word. The reason that Raymond murdered an entire family is that they were enemies and they wanted to, quote, spare other innocents from the atrocity that had been visited on the Anders family. But Lacoste never found this connection between the two men. Given his drunkenness and criminal background, it all fit, right? So Lacoste takes the information to DA John Ribera, who speaks with the family the next day, and they agree to testify against Raymond. He had received the most helpful statements from 19-year-old Clementine. Ribera added the three Barnabets were, quote, of good community standing, which is so far off base. It wasn't in the same country as the ballpark. Raymond is then charged with four counts of first-degree murder, and he was tried by a 12-man all-white jury in February 1912. D.A. Ribera thought he had three principal witnesses at the trial, Dr. Clark, the coroner, Clementine and Zephyrin Barnabet, and they provided their stories in that order. The coroner, of course, gave all the ghastly particulars of the bodies, while Clementine and her brother Zephyrin said their father woke them up between 2 and 4 a.m., making them, forcing them to go with him, do what he said. He had blood all over and forced Clementine to wash his clothes and told them not to mention this to anyone or else. They feared for their lives if their father wasn't put away for good, they said. After all this condemning evidence, he was indicted on all four counts. After a short recess, they met again for sentencing, where at this point, Raymond's attorney asked for a new trial. Based on the fact his client was unable to testify on his own behalf, he had uh, figured out finally that he came to court drunk each day. and. I have here, drunker than an anemic pig at Country Fest. You're welcome. The next day, Raymond was granted a new trial and was promptly jailed, waiting for it to resume a few months later. Now, I looked up the meaning of the name Clementine just out of curiosity. It means mild, merciful. Zephyrin is French for West Wind. Keep that in mind. November 11th, Lafayette, Louisiana, the Randall family. Norbert Azima, Albert 8, Renee 6, Norbert Jr. 5, Agnes 2. So while Randall's in the Huskow, another innocent family had their lives sadistically taken. Their oldest daughter, 10, was a person who found them all slaughtered the next morning in two separate beds, which of course were immersed in blood. Only Norbert had not been bludgeoned with an axe like the rest. He had been shot in his head. He's the only one, obviously, if you're keeping track, that had any kind of other weapon used. The axe was washed this time and leaning against the footboard of his parents' bed, leaning against the footboard of the parents' bed. Rags had been stuffed into keyholes of the front and back doors. Nothing else was disturbed. It was discovered that Norbert Randall and Alexander Andrus 
were brothers-in-law, Lacoste then arrested Clementine and her brother Zephyrin for the Randall murders. It's not known, at least upon the research in Taylor's book, what led him to do so. He also took into custody two other African-Americans who were at the home at the time. What could have brought him to this decision is that their father's defense attorney advised the court of the children's reputations as filthy, shifty, and degenerate, according at least to the neighbors. I'm thinking, though, that the big item, the big ticket here, was the fact that there were blood and brains on Clementine's clothing that they found. Now, her version said that Raymond had wiped blood on her, but this apparently didn't sit well with Lacoste. Now, Zephyrin did have an alibi, but old Merciful and Mild did not. When pressured, she would only say the blood was menstrual. So now here's the thing. There's endometriosis and all, but uh, please tell me there is no condition where a most unlucky woman has someone else's brains gushing from her hoo-ha. It, of course, was not found to be this type of blood, but it was human and mixed with brain and skull fragments. Yeah. So this is the point where Troy Taylor asserts his belief that Clementine did have accomplices for the Randall murders, and these unknown assailants would go on to commit others that were blamed on the Axeman. So apparently this was done to try and show Clementine's innocence. So she's in jail. The killings keep on occurring. So how could it be her? These, according to Taylor, these started in January 1912, Crowley, Louisiana. The Warners. Marie, who is multiracial, kids Pearl 9, Gary 7, Harriet 5. She was separated from her husband for about four years, so he wasn't living there at the time of the murders. Their bodies were found in a prone position, all on the same bed. The axe was sitting against a wall in the same room. This time, there were multiple tracks found in the backyard. So typically, they were, must have been face up, covered, and now they're rolled over. The next set of axe murders happened in Lake Charles, Louisiana, January 1912, a mere four days later with the Broussard family. Felix, Matilda, Louise, six, Twins, Alberta, and Margaret, three. Troy asserts that he feels this is actually the Axeman's work, but others thinks it was Clementine's gang. The back door of the house was standing open, showing the killer's exit, but the entry was through the kitchen window. No items were taken. The axe found under the parents' bed with crusted pieces of hair on the blunt side of an axe. A bucket had been placed under the bed so the blood could collect. Sheriff Dave Reed found this to possibly be related to some sort of ceremonial purpose and committed by a religious maniac. Further evidence was found on the inside of the back door. When he maketh the inquisition for blood, he forgetteth not the cry of the humble. This was taken evidently from Psalms 912. Then to the left of this, the word human in the number five. For some reason, this part really jacks up the creep factor by like 10. So I'm not sure what the passage means, but you can imagine how the media seized on this information, which brings us to the pic I posted on the Crime Keeper Facebook and Twitter pages. 
the little black hand with pieces of wood holding the fingers apart with the caption, how the dead fingers of the baby victims are spread apart with pieces of wood after they are sacrificed, which never happened. No records were located that corroborated this and was obviously a complete fabrication to keep readership increased. But can you imagine that National Enquirer, that flying off the shelves, if that happened? Oh, so this brings us to the Church of the Sacrifice. As I was doing my own research into this alleged sector cult, I was looking it up online. Mostly Catholic church sites popped up. So although the name is ominous, mostly because it's cr- connected to all these axe murders. It is actually a reference to the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross. So sorry to get all religious, but I am a uh, minister's daughter and all. The reason this got hackles raised was that a few years earlier, there was something called the Council of God. And it was an extremist black cult started by a disgraced minister named Albert Leon Antoine in the early 1900s that despised white people. You can understand given the situation, but anyway, Antoine taught that heaven and hell were on earth with heaven being inhabited by whites and hell by blacks. He believed that through gaining money and influence, blacks could could overthrow white people and enter heaven. Unfortunately, he said this could only be fulfilled by exterminating them. And then, and only then, could they take their rightful place in heaven. The caveat to this is he also broke down further by saying the educated and respected blacks would be masters to the poor, uneducated brethren. So hmm, problematic, but you know, it can really be tough to find the right congregation to join. You know, it came to an end, the council in 1907, when cultists attempted to kill a man because they thought he had thrown bricks at the home they were having some marriage ceremony in. They slashed him with knives, didn't hurt him, but the officer that responded to the slashed man, they did kill with um, by slitting his throat. This led to what I assume was a movie quality encounter with the popo for an hour. Um, they did had a standoff, which led to the cultists surrendering, thus dissolving the council of God. So this had just happened in 1907, and the memories were still raw, which was prime territory for one Clementine Barnabet to plant her seeds of treachery. So old Clemmy began implying she had a part in the Randall and Andrus executions, you know, the one where her father was convicted. And this was a part of a larger plot by the Church of the Sacrifice. She claimed members of the cult engaged in blood sacrifices under the protection of spells provided by voodoo doctors, which obviously played right into the racial fears of the time rooted in what many felt were the mysterious religious practices of African-Americans. There's a real ignorance misunderstanding still of what voodoo and hoodoo is. It also gave Clementine the opportunity to direct the narrative, making her the one in charge, a young black woman in the 1900s. So was she crazy? Was she a strong, cunning woman? Either way, this has really made people uncomfortable. It kind of reminded me of Tichaba and the story of the Salem witch trials, and they had accused her of being in in league with the devil. So instead of death, 
they began referring to her in the trials and accusations of other supposed witches. And she ended up escaping with her life. So this, that whole situation for her seemed out of necessity, which also to an extent may be the case here. The ginormous diff is that Tichuba was forced into the situation by being implicated as an enchantress, while Clementine placed herself into the line of fire by having a ready-made story for the police about her father. Plus, uh, of course, there was the actual hacking deaths of human beings and not just supposed spirits being teleported around spooking Puritans. They each embraced the role society had already thrust upon them, which takes extreme balls and strength Plus, there was a bunch of white dudes clamoring to hear what they said next. They held the power, even if for a moment, knowing their lives were at stake, literally in the case of poor Tichuba. The big hole in Clemmy's story is how, why they were caught if under the protection of these voodoo spells, unless she like went to the going out of business sale at Arnie's Voodoo World and purchased some stuff from the discount bin, which I wouldn't be above either, you know? Everyone loves a sale. Again, we are talking about a direct line into the worries. There was a black gang of religious fanatics murdering people. This tapped right into the ignorance we still hold today on many fronts. As I mentioned earlier, there is a connection between, quote, legit churches, which is a whole other discussion I could have, along with a threatening sense of devilment, the name Church of the Sacrifice evokes. There was another family axe murder during this time, February of 1912 in Beaumont, Texas. Hattie Dove, her son Ernest, 14, daughter Ethel, 16, 18-year-old daughter Jessie. This time, the axe did not belong to the family and had a cloth that had been used to wipe the blood from it. The axe actually belonged to a man that lived several blocks away. And oddly enough, another axe was left in the place at his woodpile. So was this the axe man or a copycat? Don't know. Then March 1912 in Glidden, Texas, Ellen Monroe and four of her 14 children, Alberta was three, Jesse 11, Dewey 12, Willie, 16, along with a boarder named Lyle Finucane. The weapon, of course, was an axe taken from their woodpile. Sheriff Lacoste was keen on locating the co-killers working with Clementine, but she kept right on admitting her role. For one of 1912, which obviously is April Fool's Day, she admitted to not working alone in her midnight assassinations, as she called them, and took credit for all of the axe murders for all those families. She didn't ever explain why they kept happening if she was behind bars, but she really didn't have to. The sensational story was enough. They had what they needed. She never provided names of her co-conspirators, but said only they were two black men and three black women, including her. This, of course, if you haven't noticed, makes a reference to five murders, which many took to be the human five. Now, it says in the book that officials decided that most of this was untrue and that she was a lunatic. But here is her confession. My name is Clementine Barnabet. I was born and partly raised near the town of St. Martinsville and moved to Lafayette about three years ago when I began to lead a life of degradation. I have never been married. She was just 17. It was while in the company of two other women and two men, while in New Iberia, that we met an old Negro who told us we could he could sell us canjas, canhas, whatever, trinkets, with which 
he could do as we which we could do as we pleased and he would never be detected and would be protected from the hands of the law by the mere fact of these i'm going to say trinkets being in our possession we bought them and paid three dollars each for them and left new iberia that same night returning to lafayette when we began to plan our actions there's some run-on sentences here girl we had not yet decided on committing any murders but it was while we were discussing our future plans that the question came up as to whether we could kill and be protected by the hoodoos. One of the gang was instructed to go to New Iberia and interview the hoodoo man who said we were safe in any and all actions that we might do. Our lives would at all times be fully protected by the power of hoodoos. The first murders they did were in rain, where Clementine dressed as a man, retrieved an axe, gained entry to the home, and, quote, brained the mother and children. She left the clothes behind and returned to her sisters. She took the midnight train back to not Georgia, but Lafayette, with no, with no attention given to her. This apparently served as proof to her gang, the power of hoodoo canyas. Canyas? Bigfoot. So in Crowley was the time that Clementine and the two other women broke into the home and the women watched while overachiever Clementine, like Frankenstein, you know, brutally take the parents' lives. She said to the children, it was an easy matter to get rid of the two small children. We thought it was better to kill them than to leave orphans as they would suffer. I'll leave that right there for you to ponder. I'm going to... Breathe in and out. She went on to say their next discussion of murder was the night before the elections, knowing that everyone would be out voting. They went to the refinery and firmed up their evil plans with supposedly no exact victims in mind. She said they, quote, simply looked for a house where there was a light on so they could see inside. Great plan. She never provided an actual motive or explained why her and her gang positioned the Andrus family so eerily. Clementine claims to have been one of the first people to assist their relatives the next day and prepare their bodies for burial. So does that mean she had to have another look if this was ever verified, if it was actually true? That's what I'm wondering. I mean, did she just need to be around them? And would people think it was odd that just some random woman wanted to i don't know for the randall killings she said she met up with at least one other member of the axe gang after midnight and a post killing spree they were wondering about and a minister ran into them so she warned him to stay away from the home as they had just killed the entire family um this is a side note here so i'm thinking that the dude might have mentioned this when he was later arrested for being connected to her cult church. So he was let go, or else I would have mentioned people were actually indicted, were convicted. Nothing ever came of it. But yeah, she said the rags that were in the keyholes so that no light could get in or out. Makes sense. She was said to have bragged about seeing people converging on the Randall crime scene and how she stood in front of the house laughing at all the disorder she had caused. So Sheriff Lacoste was himself confident that Clementine was only involved in the Randall murders because she came up with the rest of the stories after being in jail for several months and hearing about them. So then she went and did something uber crazy. She started threatening her sacrifice cult was on the hunt for other families and that 13 of them had already been selected. I guess she was bored. 
Troy Taylor feels the Warners were the only other family included in the gang's slayings, but additional murders in Texas seem to support this menace to everyone else at the time. So yeah, Taylor feels that the other murders were the work of the Axemen, the final work. But as an outsider, an axe murder is an axe murder, you know? One's panic doesn't use logic when this shit's going down or else it would be called logic and not panic. Um, and your brain and body wouldn't be screaming, we're all going to die. We're all going to die, which I imagine is how people felt. You might be asking yourself at this point, what happened to old Zephyrin? The Zeph man, Zephyrone. He now insisted his sister and a black man named Mac Thomas with a woman who was probably the inspiration for Cher because her name was Deuce, completed the actual massacres together. Wonder if they had one of those corporate teamwork posters at the refinery or Death Chapel or wherever it is they met up that encouraged them to collaborate. So Zephyrin implicated his father again, saying Raymond woke him up, making him get his pipe that was left at the Anders murder scene. And he said, I'm my own man. Daddy, no, I don't want your life. So Clemmy Clem was also back and forth when it came to her father's involvement. He was a murderer. Nope, wait, I did it. Then back to, oh yeah, he did it. Along with other ones too, whatever. Also, she decided to up the number of victims she had. So the police are like, can you explain this to us? Um, and she said like, I don't know. And looked down at her phone and started scrolling and looking at things she wanted to buy because she was never able to clarify. Axe mania was a trend in the papers, of course. And between the IRL facts, the racist fears, and the religious cult talk, everyone was just confused. Was there an actual church cult fanatic gang about? Was it just some fucked up people with the devil at the helm of their souls? Was it one demon out to eradicate what they felt was the sin of the, quote, mixing of blood by blacks and whites being together? The papers did, however, also like to remind readers of how Clementine appeared in court after her arrest, how she rocked back and forth in the witness chair, letting out screams of hysterical laughter, declaring the Randalls were murdered for disobeying the church. Of course, no link could be found that they were any, anything to do with that church or anything along those lines. Another Kentucky paper said she was the head of the church of the sacrifice, directing all the murders to, quote, obtain morality, to obtain mortality. Like I said, she was the one in control. Despite Lacoste and other officials finding Clementine insane, she went to trial after three physicians found her to be sane, although morally depraved, ignorant, and of a low-grade mentality. I think she just really knew how to play it for the best outcome, and I don't find her statements and the quotes to show that she had any kind of, uh, that she was a moron by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, they, uh, she knew they were afraid of her. 10, 24 of 12. She was found guilty of murder with a life sentence at a Louisiana penitentiary. She once tried to escape, the next year, but was found the same day. She didn't try this again, but still had an unknown procedure that supposedly restored her to normal condition, and she was released after serving a decade in jail. A decade for four murders. 
The rest of her young life post-prison is unknown, but there is a story I heard that a woman was thinking her grandmother was Clementine because she was kind of talking about it. And then when she asked her point blank, Mima, stop talking. Hmm. Really odd for me to think that she went on to live a life that she took from so many others. I also, I really couldn't find out a whole lot more about her father. I can look into that as well and find out if he still was serving time for that. You know, she couldn't make up her mind to maybe they just keep it, kept him in there for good measure, but I'll check into that because I am curious and that's it. That is the crazy, sad just intriguing story of what is the Church of the Sacrifice voodoo murders that obviously were not. It was probably her and a few people. I'm wondering if old Zeph wasn't involved. I wonder why they couldn't make that stick. Maybe I'll look into that as well. Well, Lab Rats, you know what time it is. Queen V is calling me back into the lab with promises of salty fish head goodness. So I must depart. Good night, dear Lab Rats. Remember. Everyone must find their truth, and mine is Abby Normal. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats.